I think if you're absolutely in medicine, if you do the research, that gives you the credibility that you're not just talking off the top of your head. You actually have evidence and data behind you to talk about these things. So that's one thing. But then also to be able to communicate your passion to people is really important because if you're really dedicated to something that you can see will make a difference to patient care, you'll be able to bring people along with you. And um, and then, you know, th things like this can, can happen, which I hope will improve um, the quality of care for patients in Victoria, women in Victoria. Hello and welcome to our fourth SciPod episode. Um, and today we're going to be going into women's mental health, which is a really, really exciting field and, and there's lots to talk about. Um, I hope everyone's enjoying their holidays if you've got them um, and is getting really excited for, for summer that's coming up. Thanks so much for joining us. We're really, really appreciative of, of all the support. Um, as always, if you've got any feedback, please feel free to get in touch. We'd really love to hear from you. Um, there's a form in the description or, or just feel free to message us. I'd like to begin by acknowledging and paying our respects to the traditional owners of the land we stand on, and we pay our respect to their elders past, present, and emerging. Joining me for this interview is Izzy, who has been part of our SISM team this year as well. Hi, I'm Izzy, and I'm one of the 2021 SISM co-chairs. And a special thanks goes out to the lead sponsor of our podcast, PIF, the Psychiatrists Forum, who have helped us out. SISM has received Australian government funding administered by the College of Psychiatry under the Specialist Training Program. And they've got just some amazing resources. So really feel free to go check them out if you're interested in, in entering the training program. And before we go any further, like last time, I would just like to preface that in this episode, there will again be discussions of mental health, and notably now regarding women's mental health, including certain discussions of self-harm. The description of this episode will have some more details, and we really encourage you to please reach out to support if you feel that you need it and to only listen in if you feel comfortable and able to do so. So let's get into it. As we said, we're gonna be going into the field of women's mental health within psychiatry. So let's start the conversation, let's break down those barriers and let's learn more about psychiatry. Joining us today is an extremely special guest and we're so looking forward to having this chat. We are joined by Professor Jayashri Kulkarni. Professor Kulkarni founded and directed the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Center and has been responsible for some truly groundbreaking clinical research into reproductive hormones and mental illness. She is currently associated with the Monash teaching faculties with, within psychiatry and has really strong experiences there as well. She received an Order of Australia in 2019 for her services, services to psychiatry and is internationally acknowledged as a leader in the field of women's mental health. So we could not be in better hands to learn about this topic. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. We're so, so excited to, to chat with you today. Well, it's a great pleasure and uh, privilege to be chatting to the some some future psychiatrists. So, uh, you know, I think that'd be great. So, um as medical students at Monash um, and also in other medical schools, but, you know, obviously we, we're talking about Monash medical students, um, I don't think you get enough psychiatry in the actual uh, five years of training. And um, I've certainly been involved with the training and trying to redevelop the the teaching and certainly we re revamped the fourth year teaching only about three years ago so this is running with a new program but I would like to see more psychiatry psychiatry as in the mental illness uh, assessment and treatment 
earlier in the course. So we need to, first of all, distinguish between your own well-being and um, the actual uh, study of psychiatry in patients who have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, complex PTSD and other conditions. And I think somewhere along that, the wellness and well-being aspect has kind of got a bit muddled with psychiatry teaching. But nonetheless, psychiatry is a field in medicine that I think is in great need of injection of new thinking, uh, new approaches, and certainly the delivery of new services. So really, if we want to think about it, I mean, the brain as the source of mental ill health is a very complex organ. And uh, while our neurology colleagues are in one part of the brain, particularly involved in uh, movement and other aspects of physical neurological disorders, we're also in the brain, but in other bits, which are to do with emotion, cognition and behaviour. I personally think that a person's mental state and mental health really is a big, big determinant in how they uh, experience a quality of life. So as medicine's improved over the years, we've got better and better with longevity. People are living longer as well as mobility. So people are much more mobile, but are they living better? Are they having a better quality of life? And that's really where psychiatry comes in. We are in a very exciting time in terms of sorts of different developments all over the place. Um, I'm a neuroscientist by background, and I think that really the exciting developments moving forward is as we unravel the brain connections and the dysfunctions that are going on, particularly leading to um, depression, anxiety and other disorders. So, you know, this is the area that I would hope that the next generation of physicians and psychiatrists would certainly take on board to keep working on the, um, the imaging, the chemistry, the neurosciences in general that will help to actually develop better treatments. It's not either or. People say, oh, but, you know, that's very biological and very reductionistic. And it's not because what we talk about is biological, psychological and social aspects of psychiatry. And so, you know, very much what's going on in a person's environment influences their neurochemistry, then their neurocircuitry and the expression of, of distress in a behavioural sense, uh, as well as cognitive and memory sense. So, you know, I think that there's plenty to explore. And what I'd love to be able to enthuse the next uh, generation of doctors is to try and build in your careers, uh, if you can, a combination of research and clinical. And they inform each other and they keep your brain alive. Uh, many times, unfortunately, we've seen our clinical colleagues in all different fields get a bit bored. Um, because, again, if you're a, a very super specialised uh, in a super specialised area of medicine, it can get very same, same. Um, and so that can be difficult. But I can tell you in psychiatry, no two patients are the same, even if they've got the same diagnosis. They're very, very different. But having research as part of your work keeps your brain active. It keeps you curious. It keeps you asking why. And then it offers you the, the uh, opportunities to develop new treatments that you can apply for your patient's welfare. As well as that, your patients will feed your ideas. Because I will tell you, 
this isn't working or this is working or I've noticed this. And that's important because that can also then uh, inform the next uh, particular area of research. So I think psychiatry is blue sky. There's lots to understand because we haven't got there yet. I do think it's, uh, you know, behind the eight ball in the sense of some of the other bits of medicine. But if you like a challenge, if you want to actually make your mark on a field, I think psychiatry would be a really good option to take up as a doctor. Yeah, and I really love that point when you were at the start when you were mentioning, um, I guess, our exposure to psychiatry within medical school and within, um, I guess, each year level. I'm third year myself, um, and I think this year there's there's almost no exposure to psychiatry. Um, it's, I guess, up to us to take initiative to try and get that exposure. Obviously, we do experience that in fourth year, but for those interested, um, I guess there is a little bit of a lack in third year. Um, we did have some teaching in, in pre-clean in that first or second year, but um, it's definitely something that those interested in would love to get more exposure for um, and that's predominantly I guess through medical school and how we can help people get that exposure. Um, I wanted to I guess start to talk about a bit about your background and a little bit about your journey into to how you got to hit where you are today and I know there's a wealth of experience behind you but could you sort of talk us through a bit about your journey and um, what your role is at the moment? Sure. So I'll start with the easy one first. So I am a professor of psychiatry and I'm head of the Department of Psychiatry Central Clinical School. In our faculty, we have two departments of psychiatry. I head up the one that's based at the Alfred and my colleague, Professor Suresh Sundram, heads up the other one that is based at Monash Medical Centre. Um, <clears throat> so I also have a research centre called the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre and I also have clinical practice in women's mental health. So my particular specialty is women's mental health. So I happen to um, come across as a second year medical student. I'm a Monash uh, product. Yeah. So I went to Monash Medical School. The Monash. <laughs> yeah, so I had a lovely time there. We're actually having our 40th reunion this year. Can you believe it? <laughs> feel old but anyway um so in second year medical school we had a very charismatic psychiatrist who taught us psychiatry and I think that was very influential so um I already had some interest in the mental health aspect but at, at that time um mental health and psychiatry was not seen as a particularly glamorous a particularly prestigious area of medicine it was kind of like oh, if you couldn't do anything else you do psychiatry so it was not the good um, sort of uh, marketing that was happening at that point. But nonetheless, Dr. King, who's unfortunately since um, passed away, but he was a particularly influential psychiatrist. And so I went through the rest of medical school with that sort of interest. Mind you, I got, then got particularly interested in emergency medicine. So once I finished medical school, um, I then did an internship at Prince Henry's Hospital, which is no longer there. It got merged with Queen Vic and then developed into Monash Medical Centre. So I was an Alfred student and then I swapped across to um, Prince Henry. So then I did internship. Then in the second year, I was really keen on emergency medicine. I did quite a bit of it in, as an intern. And so I went off into emergency medicine college. And I did a lot of emergency medicine and I really appreciate that because it gave me a whole range of skills in the emergency situation. But after a while, it started to pall on me because it was like, well, I was continually seeing the front end. Yes, it was glamorous and exciting and it was ER and, you know, all the 
people running in and out and the high pressure sort of situation. But I never quite felt like I actually got to see the whole story. You just patched people up, they went somewhere else, and you never really, really got to grips with the person. So one particular patient who came in uh, to ED uh, had taken an overdose and I was then managing that patient from the emergency department setting. And it again triggered this interest in the person and the whole person and what had led to all of this. So um, I then <laughs> did something which I would never recommend for students, but I was actually enrolled in two colleges at the same time. I was then enrolled in the psychiatry college as a trainee and the emergency medicine college as a trainee. That's not a good way to do it. So I was kind of doing all sorts of double shifts and all kinds of things, um, which I don't think anyone would want to do and certainly wouldn't be allowed to do now. But at the end of the set of third year, um, my then mentor, Professor David Kopolov, said, you've got to choose. You've got to decide what you're going to do. And I chose psychiatry and I think it was a really good decision. What led me into women's mental health was that as part of the psychiatry training program, um, in those days, we used to be sent, well, I was based in the general hospital, so I did a lot of training in the general hospital. But then we were also sent to the institutions that used to exist in those days. Royal Park Hospital was the one I got sent to. It was the big, big asylum um, and, you know, it was behind the big walls and all the stuff that you wouldn't want these days. But I was uh, rostered on for the chronic women's ward and in those days there were separate men's and women's wards and I was sent to the chronic women's ward and there I got to meet a number of women who told me their stories and I would always say to people I don't care which branch of medicine you go into listen listen to the whole story because there's a lot of information that our patients have to impart to us and in these stories, a lot of the time people said things like, I was okay till I had a baby. I was okay till this happened, that happened. It's my hormones, doc. It's my hormones. Mm. And that was a phrase that many, many women kept coming out with. And they said, I've tried to tell people this, but no one's listened. And so I thought, okay, well, let me have a look at this. And that started me off on a journey of thinking about hormones and mental health in women. And so I then started doing a whole bunch of reading and I connected with a German um, neuroscientist at the time um, who was working on estrogen uh, in animal models, so in, the, in rats, and uh, looking at the impact of estrogen on the dopamine serotonin systems and also brain circuitry. So that led to me thinking, well, maybe there's something in this and maybe we could actually um, think about the estrogen uh, impact in brain and that then led me to doing um, clinical trials with estrogen and, and a PhD. Again, I was very fortunate to meet a whole range of very talented researchers, uh, some in psychiatry, some from uh, neuroscience, some from lab, lab science and some from neurology and uh, were very encouraging uh, of my sort of slightly cracked ideas about you know let's use estrogen to see if we can help schizophrenia it was sort of like what you want to do what but you know again it was something that um, patients loved and lo and behold the first lot of trial results were fantastic we got some really great results and then we kept on going so that started my interest in both psychoneuroendocrinology 
as a branch of the research, but then also continuing in women's mental health. And I've expanded it, uh, the research portfolio and the clinical portfolio, not just women with psychosis, but in different areas as well. And I've also been involved in advocacy and um, the politics of psychiatry and trying to get reform into systems and so on. There's a lot to be done. But um, again, I find that the kind of intellectual challenges are fabulous because uh, all along, if someone says, well, that can't be done, I find that as like, okay, I'll prove it to you. So it's, a, it's kind of like, you know, a really, really good mechanism for uh, showing that, you know, something can be done. Um, all the time, of course, the clinical skills that I was taught were really, really important. And that is about um, how to take a history, you know, going with the patient and picking up on the little cues, the nonverbals, the verbals, understanding what's not said per se in words, picking up on how to get that, doing a risk assessment, doing a mental state examination, marrying that with the physical observations, you know. What does it mean that this person, ha this woman has hirsutism, um, what does it mean that uh, she's gained 30 kilos? What could be going on in her physical health? What does it mean that, you know, she's very cagey about talking about who she lives with and what's that bruise doing on her arm? So, you know, you can pick up all these different bits and pieces. So not once do I feel like um, if I'm a psychiatrist, I don't have any physician or physical health, uh, you know, interest. I think I'm very interested and I try and keep up with what's going on in the latest in endocrinology and the latest in uh, neuroscience and latest in so on in so many fields. So, and research does throw you into collaboration with many, many, many different colleagues. And so you're always um, learning, always learning. And that's what's fantastic because medicine is big, really big, moving fast too in some areas. And it's just fantastic to be able to have the opportunity to do that. So that's my story in, you know, all along the process. I got married, I had two daughters, trying to juggle all of that as well, um, you know, trying to uh, keep going. I ran marathons. Um, you know, so there's a whole lot that's happened over over a long period of time, but I don't regret any of it. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's really, um, I guess, insightful to hear all this stuff that you've done. And um, I especially liked the bit you said at the start in terms of listening to patients and, um, you know, picking up on those signs, those cues and being there for them. Um, I think that's really, really powerful and important. And, you know, we're driven as medical students to take really good histories and thorough histories and, you know, go through the whole spiel. But um, we need to remind ourselves that listening is so important. It's not just getting through that list of questions that, um, you know, that we need to do. Um, I wanted to hear more about your work in women's mental health. Could you talk to us, I guess, a bit about the, the demographic of patients that you work with and what's your role in terms of providing that support? Hmm. So um, at the moment we have, um, well, I still have my passion for psychoneuroendocrinology and hormones yeah. and, and women's mental health. So I started with the estrogen hypothesis and working through that, which is the, that estrogen is neuroprotective. So estrogen bluntly is, is good in terms of um, modulating the dopamine serotonin pathways. It's good for promoting neurodevelopment and circuit um, uh, formation and so on. So, um, it is a therapeutic tool that we use to treat uh, still psychosis symptoms, but also then branching into other areas. 
Um, I guess one of the things that I've been working on a lot more recently is this concept of borderline personality disorder, which I totally object to. It's a DSM uh, term, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, um, American Psychiatric Association approved um, classification system. And I think it does particularly, it's many more women are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder than men. Um, but I think it does a great disservice to the patient. Why? Because when we look back at the story and we stop and we take the full history from the patient who has presented with self-harm, usually uh, cutting her wrists with anger, with hostility, with mood swings, um, you know, that very angry, difficult, challenging patient, when we stop and we can actually get into taking the story about 85% of these patients will tell us about their horrible early life abuse. And that is abuse either in a, in a physical, sexual or emotional sense. And so when you put that in context with what the behaviours are now, the self-destructive behaviours, it really makes sense. And also it's not good to then label this individual as a personality disorder because that's kind of making out that she's to blame and she is somehow inadequate. So some of the advocacy work that we're doing at the moment is to try to, to use a different classification system, the International Classification of Diseases, which is the World Health Organization system. And we're up to iteration number 11. And in ICD-11, there is a diagnosis called complex PTSD. PTSD, we know in the war veterans, for example, yeah. uh, a series of of symptoms in response to trauma. Well, here we have uh, young women uh, or even middle-aged women who have experienced trauma, but it's not as obvious as the grenade that goes off in a, in a war-torn situation. Yeah. Yeah. Nonetheless, their behavioural um, responses can be seen in this trauma response model, and it's much more helpful for the woman and for the therapist because you can devise uh, trauma therapies that are actually very helpful. It takes the stigma away. These patients are often very badly treated in systems because it's sort of like, well, hang on, you did this to yourself. You took that silly Panadol overdose or you took, you, you cut yourself. You know, you weren't trying to kill yourself. We know that. But, you know, what are you doing? And so that, that engenders antagonism from health professionals. So if we take it back a notch and we go, okay, hang on, wait a minute, this is someone who's traumatised you tend to get more compassionate responses from health professionals, which helps the patient also. So that's one of the things that we're doing. I'm also campaigning for and have campaigned uh, to various governments over a long period of time of increased safety for women. Uh, so women in patients in um, Victoria and Australia and a lot of the Western world are managed, women are managed alongside men. And in the inpatient settings, that can be real tiger territory because we've got disinhibited male patients. You throw in ice or any of the other disinhibiting street drugs and, you know, the behaviours can be really assaultative and women have been and are being assaulted on the inpatient units. So I have campaigned for a long time about increased privacy and safety and I'm very proud of uh, 2010, we got the first grant to build a wall uh, at the Alfred in one of the wards to actually have an area for women only. It sounds absolutely basic, but it was something that wasn't done. Um, to take it to an even further step, uh, in September of this year, 
uh, colleagues and I will be opening the first ever women's uh, mental health hospital, which is going to be part of Cabrini Health, 30 bed unit um, at Elstonwick in Melbourne. And it's the first of its sort in Australia. So um, this is kind of like a translation, well, not yeah. kind of a translation of, of, a, of a decades of work in women's mental health to actually have a women-only patient facility where we can employ the cutting-edge treatments that I've talked about, hormones and many others, in a safe and private environment. So that's that's all happening in September. Congratulations. That that sounds amazing. Honestly, like it's such a, I guess, a powerful and really big step to go. And you you talked about the progression 2010 to now Um, that that's really massive. So congratulations for that. No, I'm really pleased. And again, you know, um, look, I've got, I've got a lot of uh, stories of, you know, being able to work with people who have given me their time and their money to be able to do the research and to be able to set up things like this and so on. Yeah. Not always, you know, easy by any means. There have been roadblocks along the way. But um, I think if you're absolutely in medicine, if you do the research, that gives you the credibility that you're not just talking off the top of your head. You actually have evidence and data behind you to talk about these things. So that's one thing. But then also to be able to communicate your passion to people is really important because if you're really dedicated to something that you can see will make a difference to patient care, you'll be able to bring people along with you and, um, and then, you know, th- things like this can, can happen, which I hope will improve um, the quality of care for patients in Victoria, women in Victoria. Mm. And can I just say as well, coming off the back of clinic with you, you do such an amazing job of, of doing that with patients. And it seems so simple, you know, changing the, the labelling from, say, borderline to complex PTSD or, you know, rephrasing things and, and trying to make those changes. Um, but, you know, it is so important to try and reduce stigma in any way we can. Um, and so it's really, really great to see. Yeah. And it's been fun having you in the clinic as well. <laughs> We've seen some interesting patients together. And yes, uh, again, have. I, I come back to it. Psychiatry is never the same. I, you know, even if you say these two people with depression, they will be completely different in their stories. Um, so I can honestly say I've never been bored. Boredom is something you long for when you're absolutely flat out and it's all hectic and chaotic and, and a little bit mad. But, you know, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's quite a frenetic and interesting lifestyle in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Uh, never boring. Yeah. And I guess on that note as well, because you do do a lot with um, complex PTSD, early childhood trauma, um, those kinds of patients that you're seeing, how do you personally manage kind of the mental load that you kind of get as a result of that? So again, I think um, the training in psychiatry is really important because you do uh, have um, training on how to deal with the trauma that you have heard. And and yes, we do hear some absolute terrible stories so you develop your own systems of being able to um, offset so um, things you know that that and it's different for each person you know some people will actually um, be able to just compartmentalize it and put it into this is the workbox and this is the patient stories and they're over there uh, other people will just be able to over time go yep that's terrible etc cetera, etc cetera, and then uh, walk away from that as well so different people have different mechanisms there isn't one sort of thing that 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 helps um, my go-to is to probably compartmentalize a bit more but i also um 
know that at times you just get really tired and you learn the cues of, you know, of when something is getting to you. So you, that's something you've got to be uh, comfortable with is self-reflection, which is interesting because, you know, it's the field that really in psychiatry we, we encourage you to look into yourself and to know your own uh, Achilles heel and, you know, what, what do you do when you, what, what is it that's mental tiredness? And if, if, you know, you get mentally tired, then what do you do? So my go-to is probably, you know, to just take the temperature down by doing something um, like watching a, a really light movie. Um, chocolate is one of my downfalls, um, but it's a good downfall. Um, so, you know, that, that sort of is my, is my mechanism. Um, you know, again, each each doctor needs to have her and his own mechanisms for decompressing because we do hear lots of terrible things. And I think interns feel that particularly when they start, this will happen to you, Izzy, next year, but, you know, you get very, <laughs> you get very tired yeah, because suddenly there's a workload. Mm. And um, mm. so that's an intern phenomenon of the tire, mental tiredness and it's a psychiatry registrar phenomenon. Everyone talks about the tiredness of the first-year psychiatry registrar and, in fact, it's sometimes puzzling because people go, but hang on, I was doing, you know, like I came from emergency department where you're literally running, you know, you're running from patient to patient in a busy Saturday mm. night, mm. You're blowing up this person, you're sticking an intercostal tube in that one. It's very hectic and I wasn't tired. And the first term of psychiatry that I did was exhausted. And it's a different, it's a different energy that you're expending. So again, you know, it's important to be self-aware. That's where perhaps some of the early stuff you get in medical school, the well-being stuff, hopefully helps with personal mental health care. It doesn't train you in the early days to deal with patients with mental illness, but it, it should be something that you can you can fall back on when when you are recognizing your own mental load. Yeah, and it's so I guess like as you said, we learn it in first and second year, but um, you sort of don't appreciate how important it is till you progress. Um, and it's so important to just recognize your own mental health and know when it's time to take a break and know when it's time to you know do those self care strategies that we learn so much. Because, um, yeah, it's so, it's really, really important. Um, you were mentioning before about the stigma. And I, it's something that I'm really, really interested in in terms of the stigma around mental health. Um, so I guess it's a two-part question. What's your experience with stigma around mental health in, in your own practice? But secondly, how can, I guess, individuals in the community help tackle this stigma? Because it's obviously quite an impeding sort, like preventing support and preventing people from seeking help. So what can we do to take action for it? Yeah, it's a really good question. In fact, it's something that's really topical. I'm now chairing the National Stigma um, Committee as part of the Mental Health Com uh, Commission federally. And so we've got to look at stigma nationwide. Yeah. I think the stigma particularly, uh, as I even said to you, you know, psychiatry as a profession was frowned on um, in my era at my, as a Monash medical student. So going back into that. It was just seen as, you know, you if you were pathetic at the other parts of medicine or surgery, then you would go into psychiatry. And it started there. And the stigma attached to the patients as well as the staff. So, you know, the wards were all up the back of the hospital. They were the dingiest, darkest sort of areas. No one particularly was interested. The psych rotations were particularly 
you know, you had to do them, but no one was particularly interested and so on and so on. So we have moved from there. But I still think that what drives the stigma is the unknown, that, you know, we still don't have objective diagnoses in psychiatry. We have manuals that say if you've got these five symptoms over this period of time, then you've got this diagnosis. But that's different to if you've got chest pain, you go and get an ECG and there it is. That's the ischemic change or not. Um, we don't have that in psychiatry. And that lack of objective diagnosis means that you're operating in the grey. And so, therefore, there's a lot of room for people to go, well, that's just your opinion that that person's depressed. But, you know, um, I don't think they're depressed. And, and somebody else comes along and they go, no, 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 that's just that person. They're just a bit of a sad sack. You know, that's how they are. And so you've got this opinion. And the minute you do that, um, you know, it, it loses the sense of objectivity and the, then you've got more stigma because then you've got room for interpretation that, look, hang on, that person's not depressed, they're just pathetic. They should just pull up their socks and get on with it. So I think we need to have better objectivity in, in psychiatry, and that's where the neuroscience comes in. As the neuroscience gets better and better, and you can actually understand brain changes better with depression, with trauma, that has brain changes. As we do that more, then the person is going to slip more into this is an illness. This is starting to look like diabetes or it's starting to look like hypertension or whatever they, you know, you want, whatever it is. But until we get to that point, and as we've got conjecture and everybody's views and everybody's opinions, and some of those opinions will be this is nothing other than the person pretending or putting it on, we're going to have stigma. And unfortunately, the medical profession is very stigmatising of, and, and nursing profession, uh, both stigmatising of mental ill health conditions in themselves and also in their colleagues yeah. and in their patients. So I would urge you future doctors to try to see mental ill health in the same way that you see the other ill health conditions. Um, and, and if you can just keep that in mind, this person has a heart attack, this person has cancer, this person has depression, they're all um, an illness and a patient is a patient is a patient. If we just kind of try to keep those basics happening, then it might help us destigmatize some of the issues. And as the treatments get better and as we talk more about it and we move away from the concept of this is somehow a moral problem that this person has, they're not strong enough they're not good enough um, we get away from that then hopefully that will um, help I, I do think so that neuroscience is very helpful in this and that you know we can hope to get the test that says go do this test and here it is you know these results show that you have depression that would be nice it would yeah yeah, I think it's just a really important, I guess, topic to explore because, um, you know, there's so many different initiatives, whether that be Are You OK Day and things like that, to tackle the stigma from the community perspective and uh, in mental health in general. And then I guess recently when we've been talking to psychiatrists, it's always come up that there's been a stigma 
within specialty. So for example, stigma within addiction psychiatry, within psychiatry as a field. So it's just to me very interesting how there's so much stigma within each specialty within psychiatry and then as a whole in psychiatry itself. And um, obviously it's been changing over the years and it's become less stigmatized. And you talked about the how it's been marketed back um, quite so many years ago and how it's changed till now, but there is still that stigma associated with it. So I think it's a, it's a really important thing that medical students and medical schools just can tackle and, and make it an active effort to deal with as much as possible. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. And I noticed before you were talking a little bit about the kind of brain changes um, more broadly and, and how they are something that we're trying to bring into, bring to light more so that um medical students and the medical profession as a whole can understand the basis behind, you know, why people are the way they are or um, their, their mental health issues. Do you mind just giving us a brief rundown on the, the theory or the pathophys or where we're at with that at the moment, if that's okay? They're different, different conditions, different um, ideas. So, for example, um, and this is, you know, cutting edge in the sense of what this is the work that we're doing, is trying to understand what happens with the the gene environment interactions and then the mood environment interactions. So, you know, we, we've, people talk about, first of all, it's just, you know, I don't believe in the mind as such, okay? I, I think that's just a weird concept that um, we've used to lump together the emotion, memory, behaviour. But if you look at any of those, they're all brain functions. It's just different bits of the brain to movement. Um, example but you know we've called that mind and so we go with it for the general public but in actual science terms no there's no such thing as the mind um, it is brain so when we look at it from that perspective for example we know that um, we have brain chemistry that responds to environmental cues and environmental um, events you can watch brain circuitry change as you learn something it has to so, you know, you're learning a lot of facts in medical school. You lay that down in circuitry um, so that you then form memories from that. So similarly, you can lay down circuitry that um, if you want are bad circuits. So, for example, our patient who um, uh, may have, uh, say, for example, say, may have a skirmish with the police. Something happens, right? Mm -hmm. They then ruminate, ruminate, think about that, think about that. They may have a family history of schizophrenia. We know that there are some, um, it's not one gene by any means, it never will be, but there's a family of um, genes that determine the dopaminergic mechanisms and the amount of dopamine that is um, put out in certain um, parts of the brain and so on. So here you have this combination. This person's had a skirmish with police. They're constantly thinking that the police are out to get them. They start being anxious about that they're looking out the window uh, and then they see a white car and they think that that white car might be a police car and it's following them everywhere it's not but you know that then becomes the ruminative constant overwhelming thought so it doesn't matter what else they're doing this thought keeps going round and round that is how you learn so you build the circuit around the um, concept of the police are out to get me. And there's the paranoid delusional beliefs. And again, with the white matter that's continually reinforced, um, there is a strong belief um, that the police are out to get me. And that becomes the thing that takes over all of this person's life. Now, 
why that person has has been able to develop that circuit why are they actually unable to use other reality testing to go no no it's not the case uh, again will be found in the neurochemistry changes which have got some genetic loading and so on and it might be that environmentally they don't have much else in their life they don't have a lot of support um, they don't have the sorts of um, family to bounce these things off and the family going, no, no, here's the reality testing. This is, you know, the other side of the coin. They don't have education or work that pro provides them with a whole range of other things. So what I'm trying to give you here is an example of a developing psychosis in someone who might have problems with relationships, a genetic loading, a neurochemical kindling, and then bang you know one event that's based in reality but then gets exploded into a delusion and then it goes on because the circuits get stronger and stronger the more you feed them with the thoughts and so again we have this full-blown delusion which is now unshakable and the person then gets themselves into trouble because they act on it they go and they try and attack somebody in a white car thinking in their own mistaken belief that this is a police person who's trying to hurt them etc they get into hospital and so you've got all of that so i i trying to illustrate you know how something like a delusion might develop from both a genetic environmental and then uh you know an ongoing um psychological and environmental sort of feeding of this mm, particular mm. stuff and i think we can see that in many different areas um, you know, if we look at the what's going on in a violent situation for a woman who's living with, say, has had early life traumas, uh, sexual abuse or physical, both sexual and physical abuse for some time as a, as a child, um, and then she is in a relationship that is now violent as a, as a young woman, that is, uh, again, can, that environmental situation can create a change in neurochemistry because what happens is this woman is very anxious, understandably. She's always been anxious because, you know, she never knew who was going to attack her next. That sets up a change in the hormone world, uh, particularly with uh, cortisol and the derivatives of cortisol and many others with downstream effects. As well as that, it sets off a chain event in terms of the neurochemistry changes, particularly in the ketamine, oh, sorry, in the NMDA system, which is a glutamate uh, environment learning system uh, that has chemistry involved in actual coding of that. So now we've got an environment, we've got biochemical changes, we've got neuroendocrine changes and so what you see is 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 the woman who then develops um, the anxiety plus the poor self-esteem plus misperception so somebody says something she takes it to heart she thinks they're criticizing her she feels so bad about herself that she slashes her wrists or she takes an overdose and on we go and that then feeds uh, you know, she goes in and some nurse or somebody in an ED department says, well, you didn't really want to kill yourself, go away and do a better job, um, you know, and that has been said with the stigma aspect. And so then you've got, you know, well, I'm hopeless, I'm pathetic. That network continues to build mm -hmm. in terms of brain circuitry. And so that behaviour keeps continuing. So I think we need to think about behaviours, emotions, memories, uh, you know, all intertwined in, in the brain in terms of neurochemistry, neurohormones, neurocircuitry, and then finally uh, structural changes over time. 
Mm. And I think that's what's so interesting about psychiatry, you know, to, to me anyway, is that everything is so multifactorial and you have so many different elements at play and every patient that comes in, they have a very layered kind of history and background that you really have to tease out to, to properly understand what's going on. Um, and I guess kind of looking forward as well, we are kind of moving towards a place where we are starting to understand that, which is really good. And, you know, having just come off that psych rotation, I have been kind of, you know, seeing seeing the questions being asked around all kind of different social factors, early childhood factors, all that kind of thing. So I think it's really great that as students we're getting exposure to, to that kind of broader understanding and aspects of patients' lives. And I think also you put the physical health stuff in there as well. So as you and I have seen in our clinic, mm. um, you know, the, the, the young woman with the early life abuse story is the same woman who develops polycystic ovarian syndrome, who is very overweight, who then develops uh, diabetes as mm. a result of insulin um, sensitivity changes. You can trace that back to uh, the body and brain reactions to early life stressors. You know, there's a programming of changes in the neuroendocrine uh, systems which have cascade systems downstream as well. And we look at autoimmune conditions. I mean, it's not surprising that in many women and men who have autoimmune disorders, you trace back in, in many of them, there's something in the early life that didn't go really well. Um, and so, again, that, you know, can put the young brain into a very stress-related uh, sort of way of being, which can then have impacts on the immune system that, of course, acquired immunity does depend on the autoimmune factors and so on, the immune factors, the IL system and so on, is under the um, neurohormonal control as well. So... It's almost like, you know, we, we've done, I think, medicine a disservice by going, oh, okay, we're just going to think body or you people over there are just going to think about mental stuff. Um, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not really sensible to do that. Yeah, as you were talking, like I was literally just about to say that in terms of like isolating mental health and physical health yeah. is, is not possible because they're so connected in so many different ways biologically and in more ways than that like you were talking about so um it's important to look at it in terms of we're working together um and even within healthcare they need collaboration and i know in my wards like it's common to refer to like psychiatrists and, and work together to deal with that patient or help that patient and support them um, because they've got multifaceted issues and we need to work and, and deal with that together so um 100 that's really really important i think the last sort of area that we wanted to touch on for the last five, 10 minutes maybe, um, is talking a bit about medical students who are interested in psychiatry or um, that pathway. Do you have any tips or suggestions for us to increase our exposure or any tips in terms of that application into getting there if we are interested? Sure. So um, the College of, of Psychiatrists um, recommends that people have... Um, well, you have to be, you have to finish your intern year, but they recommend that you do one other year uh, as a J, as a HMO and uh, in particular, if get a psych rotation in that HMO year. That's your second year as a, as a doctor. That's really critical because 
this college doesn't want to have people come in with some sort of airy fairy romantic notion of what psychiatry is about. They want people to have had some experience. So that's at the at that end. And then there's applications that go into the uh, College of Training, sorry, College of Psychiatry's Training Committee, as well as applications that go into all the major public hospitals that have psych training programs. So that's the nitty gritty of the process. As students, it's interesting that um, with the MD course, we've changed the structure. And I think there are more opportunities for people to do bits and pieces that, again, there's a bit more of a sort of your grown-ups, you know, try and, and sort of organise your own interests. And so there are opportunities, and I have... Um, many students who've said, can I just come and do something with you, which is not really part of a formal rotation uh, as, as such. If you can get formal rotations, um, you know, for example, Izzy just did an extra six weeks in psychiatry as an elective, um, that's great. Uh, but you can also do other informal things. Um, the scholarly project, for example, the scholarly intensive project um, is another opportunity to do something in psychiatry if you're interested. Um, it is good to get a publication. As it gets tougher and tougher to make differences for internship and applications as, as HMOs, some of the things that differentiate the CVs are actually publications. So, um, for example, if somebody has a publication in psychiatry, that looks good when you're trying to get into the College of Psychiatry training program. It could be a letter to the editor, um, which is a 300-word letter to the editor of the Australian New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry, which is about a case or an observation or whatever it is. Um, so, again, those sorts of things do matter if you're trying to um, get into the training. Anything extra that you do is, is always a good thing on your CV. Um, the College of Psychiatrists do recommend that you do have some medical surgical experience because, again, that concept that, you know, we're trying to marry physical health and mental health. So we don't really want people who've got, who haven't done enough in the physical health world that they would not be able to understand, um, you know, that the diabetes here is really having an impact on the mental health of this particular patient and, and know how to, if not actually manage the diabetes yourself, then actually have some understanding of the management as well as the depression management in this patient. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I think, as you said, with that research or any exposure that I think we can get to, you know, further like inform us of what we're actually trying to get into and um, get that greater exposure is really important because you don't want to go in there blindsided and um, not have a particularly accurate perspective of what you're actually aiming for. So um, that's really important. I think Overall, like we could talk for for ages, as I was saying before, but um, just for your time, we, we'll wrap it up soon. But um, I, at the end of every interview or in every conversation, I really like just spending a couple of minutes reflecting on on what you said and what we talked about. Um, and one of the things that really, really stuck out to me was um, you said earlier, you said communicate your passion. Um, and I think that's so profoundly important for anyone because it's all about finding your interests projecting it and you know following and as you've done in terms of you know all that work you've done following that interest and creating meaningful profound change within that field or that specialty um it can be really powerful because not only for yourself but then you bring everyone else involved by you know following your passion and spreading it and i think just talk, listening to you and, and talking with you today it was really really inspiring because um i think it reminds us that if we do have that interest we should really 
put an active effort into following it as much as possible. So I really, really appreciate that. And thank you so much for, for giving your time today. My pleasure. And uh, I wish you both all the best in your future careers. Thank you so much. <laughs>